Good day. Welcome to your favorite place, the Trendy Place. And this is the Trend Podcast with Justin A. Williams. And I am here to bring you awesome content from all across the spectrum that is meant to inform, excite, and most of all, keep you trendy. If you like a podcast where the unexpected should be expected, then the Trend is the podcast for you. We have a great show for you today. Thank you for joining us. We are better when we trend together. Just as a disclaimer, the views expressed today do not reflect the views of New York Trend Media. Guests are free to speak their minds unfiltered and uncensored. We are here as a place of dialogue, no more and no less. We have a great guest for you today. It is Nkechi Taifa. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Well, I pronounce it Nikichi. 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 Okay, great. Taifa. Nikichi Taifa, yes. And she runs the Taifa Group, LLC, a social enterprise firm that is founded, convenes, and directs the Justice Roundtable, an advocacy coalition advancing progressive justice systems transformation in D.C. And Kichi also co-hosts the weekly Pacifica radio show, Crossroads, and frequently tackles hot-button issues on numerous national and local media outlets. And Kichi is an activist and the author of Black Power, Black Lawyer, My Audacious Quest for Justice. And where can we find that book? Oh, you can find it on Amazon or go to your favorite black bookstore. Uh, It should be wherever books are sold. Black Power, Black Lawyer, My Audacious Quest for Justice. Well, it definitely sounds audacious, if not exciting (laughs) to hear. Um, So why don't don't we start with you telling us a little bit about yourself and your, your journey to where you are now? Okay. Well, my journey goes back. I mean, we're talking about decades Um, I really was a teenager um, coming up during the Black Power era, kind of like after the civil rights, um, uh, coming of age, like in the late 60s. And I remember this was during the time when Black Studies was first coming into the classroom. And I'm in my eighth grade Black Studies classroom. And there's this poster on the wall with this Black man with this Black beret on his head. Uh, with a rifle in one hand and a spear in the other hand, sitting in a Grand Slam working chair. And all the girls, all the classmates in my, in my class were giggling and talking about how cute this brother was. But I was asking the teacher, well, why is he in prison? Why is he here to the Black Panther Party being represented by white lawyers? I'm asking, where are the Black lawyers to represent Black people? Mm. And it was from there that my thirst for uh, knowledge and information and study and culture and all like that really blossomed in and um, uh, and bloomed. And I kind of came up in the Malcolm X by any means necessary uh, type of tradition, you know, I guess you could say. Uh, during the same time, I'm 16 years old and I'm, um, I'm selling Black Panther Party papers on the streets of Washington, D.C. Now, I wasn't a member of the Black Panther Party, only went to their P.E. political education classes and helped sell their uh, paper. But one day I really just opened up the paper and looked at the centerfold to the part that says what we want, what we believe. And point number three always just, ah, it just left an indelible uh, imprint on my soul. It was talking about uh, uh, we believe this racist government has robbed us and we demand the overdue debt of 40 acres and two mules. Uh, and I'm not sure where the two came from. I always talk about 30 acres and a mule, but they talk about 40 acres and, and two mules. And they talked about the Germans were aiding the uh, Jews and the this and the that. And, you know, where was the payback from slavery for black folk? And from that point, that was, you know, um, uh, uh, five decades ago. <laughs> I've been talking about reparations uh, ever since. In those early days, you know, 
People say, oh, you're just a militant, you're just a revolutionary, you're just plain crazy. Or today they might say you're a black identity you know, extremist. But I vowed to talk about it whenever and wherever I could, regardless of who was listening to me. And, you know, as time went on, I became a lawyer and uh, began to do the legal thing and still talk about reparations and many, many other things as well. So that kind of was my entree, I guess you could say, into the movement, into the struggle, into the issue of reparations. And I will say that, you know, today it's mainstream. Today it's like kind of like in your face. Uh, but back then, it wasn't like that at all. So it gives me great, um, uh, I don't know the word for it, um, smiles, I'll just say, to be in the company of just so, so many people talking about reparations today, from the 2020 candidates buying for the Democratic nomination to the U.S. Conference of Mayors to Amalgamated Bank to Ben and Jerry's ice cream. I mean, I'm just saying Folk are uh, uh, talking about this issue, the issue of reparations, Justin, I'm telling you, it is on fire. And I'm just glad that um, uh, I like to think that I was a part of helping it to get on fire. Wow. Well, I mean, with that kind of uh, uh, energy, I, I can't see how you would possibly fail <laughs> in, in any endeavor. Um, I, just for our audience, I think the person that was on that wicker chair with the spear was Huey P. Newton. Is that who you're referencing? Yeah, absolutely. Huey P. Newton yeah. was head of the Black Panther uh, uh, Party, you know, at right. the time. And, you know, just that image, you know, images, cultural icons, things like that sure. really do, I think, make a difference because it it mesmerized me. Sure. And I, I, I think a lot of people in your generation can relate to that kind of inspiration. Um, from the black intellectuals at the time. Of course, uh, one of the things that got me interested in the reparations debate was I was watching a, a show with William Buckley. Now, William Buckley is not somebody that I politically align with, but I do find him interesting from the 60s and 70s and his his use of arguments and dialogue to at least open up the floor to different kinds of discussions. He had James Baldwin on. Uh, for example, um, and Martin Luther King. So he had a debate between two African-Americans. It was Thomas Sowell, and if I'm not mistaken, it was Stokely Carmichael. And um, and other uh, white intellectuals were on the show as well. And it was about reparations. Mm -hmm. And I just was wondering if there's any kind – have you heard of Thomas Sowell? Oh, yeah. He's an economist. Yes. Mm -hmm. Conservative. Yeah, yeah. Uh, conservative. But, yeah. but, you know, his argument against reparations that he said basically was that he th one, he thought that most black people didn't want it. Two, he thought that it was uh, denigrating to have some white institution establishment pay black people uh, for um, uh, things that happened hundreds of years ago. And his third argument was that this seems more like a uh, affirmative action, which he definitely disagreed with. So what I've kind of looked at uh, a lot is people like Larry Elder um, and other black conservatives who really in the in the past year or two, since the reparations argument was coming back alive, really have lambasted reparations as this kind of weakness, as this kind of sense that 
oh, you just want another government handout. Can you reframe reparations for us? Can you, how would you frame the reparations argument in, in light of those, those responses? Well, first of all, reparations is payment for a debt owed. Now, when they say that they don't believe in reparations, are they talking about they didn't believe that the Jews should have gotten reparations from the Germans? Are they saying that the Japanese Americans shouldn't have gotten reparations after a World War II? Or, mm, excuse me, let me go here. Are they saying that the white folks shouldn't have gotten reparations after the end of the enslavement period? Because they did. And you ain't hear nobody's outlaw. You ain't even hear nothing about that today. But only when we're talking about black folk <laughs> and the past due debt do all of these arguments come up and, um, uh, you know, and materialize? One of our problems is the white ethnocentric education that we have been inundated with in this country that leads us to think that we're not worthy of what every other people in the world is worthy of. Mm. And that is just wrong. And it, it, I, I think that actually, Justin, that's part of the harm. That's part of the injury, the miseducation the inability to apply to ourselves what human beings all over the world have a right to. And it's not anything mysterious. I'm a lawyer. I mean, you go out there and you get hit by a car, you go to court, you get damages. That's what reparations is, is damages for an injury. The problem is this injury that we have because it never, ever was rectified, okay, it still stands due today. Right. And it's also important to note that reparations is not limited to the harms from the enslavement era, but also okay. for its lingering impacts, which still manifest today. I mean, we're talking about, you. first of all, we had the illegal kidnapping, we had the cultural assault, we had the nearly 300 years of free forced labor, followed by 100 years of convict lease labor, we had the black codes, we had the, 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 the sharecropping, we had the peonage system, we had the lynchings, the mass murders, we had the systemic racism, the Jim Crow apartheid, the gerrymandering, we had the redlining, we had the, 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 the educational inequities, the health disparities, mass incarceration, all of the above. Sure. All of the above subsumed within the collective genes of black folk in, um, uh, you know, in, in this country. We got the trauma. The trauma that still lives today. Now, let me say something about affirmative action. I mean, technically, affirmative action could have been seen as a form of reparations before they opened it up to any and everybody. OK, when it was at one point specifically, I thought it was supposed to be a race based uh, remedy. But that totally went um totally off the reparations grid, I guess you could say. I remember Craig Washington. He was a former congressman from um, Texas. Back in 1990, he was on the floor of the House of Representatives arguing in support of the, um, uh, the civil rights bill or one of those civil rights laws or something like that. He said, basically, nobody's asking for reparations. We're just asking for the crumbs off the table. And despite the fact that those were crumbs, uh, you know, Bush senior, you know, vetoed that bill, you know, anyway. So, you know, it is payment for a debt. Uh oh, my mantra always has been that the harms from the enslavement era and its vestiges, the harms were multifaceted. Thus, the remedies must be multifaceted uh, as well. So at one point, 
you know, folk were talking about just money or land or, you know, cash payments. I wholeheartedly believe that that is and must always be a part of any type of just reparations uh, settlement. But remedies can also include other things as well. And that's where H.R. 40, the federal reparations bill, comes into play. And it's so very important for the expert minds in this country to come together and to uh, uh, parlay all of this out. You know, what does this mean? You know, what is owed? What is due? And what form of forms should it be? You, you know what I'm saying? But we've never had the opportunity. Oh, hell, the, the, the excuse me. But the, the, the U.S. government has never even uh, entered an unfettered apology, just even an apology for the enslavement era. Now, the House of Representatives and the Senate did apologize for slavery at one point. But the Senate apology included a, a, a proviso that you cannot use this apology uh, for to, to support any type of claim for reparations. Chucky Boogie, the audacity. I mean, how are you going to do that? I mean, you know what I'm saying? So um, it's a just claim. It's not affirmative action. It's not welfare. It is a debt that is owed. And it's a debt whose remedy must be determined by the injured parties, by people that look like you and I. Well, a question I could say in response is to play, I guess, uh, devil's advocate is how do you logistically determine who gets it? Because let's say you have a situation where one, how, you know, the, the documentation is effectively lost. How do, do we, do we give it to, how do we prove somebody is a descendant of a slave? Um, not just by being black because you could be black and from other areas. Um, but let's say uh, funny enough, uh, you have a white family that actually has an ancestor that was in slavery. Uh, would they also get reparations too? Uh, so my position is that if I were on the commission and making recommendations, I would not say that you have to have that proof because I, I personally feel that that proof in this day and age now, despite the DNA, despite the, um, um, uh, you, you know, all those uh, ancestral tracings and all like that, it's all, all often near impossible for a lot of people. Now, there's some people, you, you know, yeah, you're hearing Emily Lewis Gates, who, who's done the tracings, and you have the celebrities um, out there, and you have some average or ordinary everyday people who's done it as well. But for many, many people, and I would submit the vast majority of people, it's almost impossible. And that's part of the injury itself. Because things have been wiped out. After an enslavement period, a lot of people changed their names. A lot of people didn't even get up there and get registered because they were fleeing from the Klan or they were fleeing from this or that, you know, or the other. I think that it's very difficult to uh, do that. So there's got to be some other type of indicia. And again, there are folk who have made recommendations as to what the standard should be. It should be a lineage standard. It should be, uh, uh, you know, what you put on the Census Bureau, you know, ABC, one, two, three. Then Mike, those, those are suggestions. Those are suggestions that should come up as part of a commission. But there might be other suggestions as well. And I, for one, would love to have a open ear to all of the suggestions and recommendations that are out there as to determine the who. 
And it might be a situation, because this is just another one of, you know, you have three eras. You have like the enslavement era. You have the apartheid Jim Crow era. And you have the, um, let's just say the civil rights era, or the today era, or whatever. Uh, I'm going to do Diallo and um, Abner Luima. I'm not sure if you remember those names, but they were immigrants who were, um, well, one, one was murdered and one was severely, severely tortured by New York. Um, yeah, it happened in New York when I was a kid. But, okay, yeah, exactly. And nobody asked them who they were, or where they came from, but they suffered from one of the injuries that we talk about as um, meaning of repair, the injury of um, police abuse and police brutality, uh, you know, et cetera. So if you look at that particular era, well, maybe they will recover under that um, era, rubric. Maybe they might not recover under the Jim Crow apartheid rubric, or maybe they would. I don't know. <laughs> but I'm saying we are history in the making right now. I don't think that it's for me to say this is how it should be. This is how it can be. This is what it must be. But to me, to be part of a whole discussion of experts that's part of a federally chartered commission to parlay out all these issues and make uh, the determination. I got to admit, I have not watched, God, what's it called? Watchmen? Watchmen yet. I've been meaning to watch it. I watched the first episode that um, dealt with Tulsa, Watchmen that stars Regina King. But I know that there's some type of reparations rubric that is throughout that movie. Maybe they, I mean, I don't know what they did with it. I mean, I'm just, I'm just saying, um, with history in the making, this is a, a topic that needs to be discussed, needs to be debated, um, and then needs to be decided and determined. What I will say is that it is due and it's up to a commission to determine the who, what, when, and how. Well, I think you've, I think you've picked a a battle that is going to come up against obviously a lot of obstacles, um, but namely because people are already kind of skittish about spending. I think obviously um, you're going to have some people who are racist and they're going to going to say, uh, you know, black people should not be uh, worried about the past. They can just move on. They're going to code it obviously, uh, but they're going to have some people who are the, I guess, concerned more about, the kind of small government arguments that people make and saying, how can we afford that when we have the debt, right? We have to lay the debt ceiling yet again. And how can we, the government afford to pay out the, uh, you know, to maybe what 10% of the country um, uh, uh, upwards of however much money it's going to be. And while I like the argument that it was in law, or ordered that black people would get this, right? After slavery, it was said by Abraham Lincoln and the radical Republicans of the time that a part of the Emancipation Proclamation was that um, blacks would get uh, 40 acres in a mule, right? This wasn't some kind of like loose agreement. This wasn't some kind of thing in a speech. This was something that was in writing. And we didn't get those things. Now, 40 acres of land could be quite valuable today. <laughs> and, I, you know, the, the mule, I don't think it's going to be necessary, obviously, unless it's a symbolic gesture. How about um, Tesla? I'm playing. You're right. Yeah, Tesla or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, some kind of transportation. Um, but I, I, I do agree that, you know, 
reparations has happened before, as you mentioned. And I think a lot of people don't know that. A lot of people don't know that Jewish people uh, got reparations from Germans uh, to help them uh, build a nation state of Israel, that as a part of a global effort of a kind of reparations type act, Britain and America helped form the state of Israel. So they got a whole nation, right? And I will preface by saying I am part Jewish. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously I I care uh, about that uh, in a personal way as well. And I have a stake in that community, but I'm also part black. And I, I, I also wonder why, why is it so difficult for people to understand that if okay if jewish people can get reparations for um the the terrible atrocity of the holocaust uh and basically losing their their home in 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 europe uh and the japanese can get reparations for something as something like internment which as horrible as that was um was not hundreds of years of the complete degradation of human beings and the self and community uh, now, people like to say, well, slavery was legal back then, right? It was legal all around the world. Um, we weren't doing an illegal act. What do you say to that? That, that slavery was le- legal. Oh, look, let me just go here if I can. Um, after Toussaint, Louverture, Dessalines, and Christophe kicked the butts of the English, the French, and the um, the Spanish, Yes. Um, with the with the Haitian Revolution, they were required to pay reparations to France. Yes, they were. That only just recently stopped. Ended. Yeah, it only recently ended. Yeah, 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 and they were paying that to people who weren't even born during the time of the Haitian Revolution when they when the the brothers and sisters seized their. Um, uh, uh, seize their, their independence. So, you know, that argument that slavery was legal, I mean, that's part of our argument as far as I'm concerned. This is part of the argument of the United States government because, in fact, it was, in fact, codified within the U.S. Constitution, which makes the United States even more liable. The um, uh, part of the Constitution talks about the continued importation of captured, uh, of kidnapped African, uh, you know, black folk until the year 1808. It talks about the three-fifths, folk being counted as three-fifths. It talked about the fugitive slave provision that no African, even if he or she had reached a free state, none of us were safe. And it was a duty, the constitutional obligation of every single white man, woman, or child to deliver up the escaped African and deliver us up to the government. Yeah, that was legal. Okay? And that is why it's even more so that there should be repertory justice with respect to specifically the um, uh, the federal government. What just happened, we, we're calling this trending with um, Justin, the, the trend report. Uh, just it's, it's the trend. <laughs> the trend, I'm sorry. Uh, in California, uh, Bruce's Beach. Um, later, yes, I've heard of that, yeah. That was mm-hmm. taken from yeah. black folk, okay? And then legally, quote unquote, taken by the government through what's called the legal doctrine of eminent domain, legally taken or whatever, but it was illegal. It was so-called legal, but it was illegal. And, you know, international law has called the Atlantic slave trade and the enslavement um, of black people a crime against humanity. And there is no statute of 
limitations on crimes against humanity. So. Okay. Well, <laughs> if, if I was arguing against you, I think I would be quite, quite quiet. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, my, my job here is, is basically for our audiences to um, educate them on, on, on both sides, because I think it's, it's, I think it makes the argument for it uh, sharper um, by understanding what other people are kind of saying and and the context that we that we live in. You know, I wish we lived in a situation where um, uh, did you did you see the movie One Night in Miami? Oh yeah, with um, Malcolm and uh, Muhammad Ali Muhammad and then Ali Sam Cooke. Sam Cook. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. yeah. So Leslie Odom plays Sam Cooke, and um, what I. What I was struck by in the movie, uh, so a little bit about, um, I think I've shared this with the audience before, but my father worked on Wall Street and um, my father grew up in the same era as you, um, went to college in the 70s and uh, was very interested in the black power, black solidarity movement. Um, My father also could pass uh, for white if he wanted to, he chose not to. Um, And he uh, eventually... Um, you know, he was broke out of college. Uh, he became a teacher and he decided that he wanted to give Wall Street a try. And this changed the trajectory of his opinion. He, uh, like many people, uh, yuppies at the time, he started being really interested in black economic empowerment and the whole theory of that really what separates the minorities, the formerly oppressed or the currently oppressed uh, from minorities who maybe enjoy a little bit more status or, or standards is economic empowerment, right? They People at the end of the day care about profit. Um, they will e- even excuse the fact that you are black or Asian or Hispanic uh, if you can make them money. Uh, and he uh, basically told would tell me that reparations is about Empowering black people in a way economically so that they can make up for the way that they were after slavery actually doing quite well economically and then had that snuffed out by racist members of the KKK and and other uh, whites who attacked um, black institutions. I mean, we could talk about uh, what happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We could talk about other communities, uh, things that happened in Harlem. But black economic empowerment was something that was happening uh, in the early uh, turn of the 19th, of the 20th century. And then it gets snuffed out. And then we get to the situation where now you have the collusion of the welfare state. You have the collusion of different things that sought to help black people. But there's less, not as much investment financially in terms of actual dollars and cash. So what do you think about like how reparations can actually really infuse African-Americans whether they have money or they don't with the economic empowerment to maybe start their own businesses or start their own companies or invest however they like? Well, I firmly am of the belief that, again, the remedy must be something that the injured parties determine is due and is and is just. Um, closing of the black-white wealth gap is imperative. It is important. It's critical. But it's not the end all. Because, like you said, during the uh, turn of the century, of the last century, you know, the uh, um, 1900s and all, you talk about Tulsa, Elaine, Arkansas, 
uh, Wilmington, North Carolina. The list just goes on and on. There was white envy of black power. There was white envy of black economic power and uh, development. So it was more than just being able to close that gap. We needed to protect ourselves. Okay. We needed um, educational um, um, advancement. We needed uh, these health disparities uh, to go away. We might have even closed the black-white wealth gap, et cetera, et cetera, but folks were still dying disproportionately. That's why um, we atone to the uh, five injury uh, areas. Again, anyone can come up with anything else. It was just one in which uh, my teachings uh, led to, and that was um, um, education, health, economics, the um, uh, um, um, the criminal punishment system, and what we call peoplehood. You know, our whole peoplehood, the whole culture was just snatched from us. So repair needs to be in each of those areas, uh, not just um, one area. Again, it's critical that whatever funds, if it is in the form of funds, is used to... Um, uh, uh, to build up ourselves and build up our communities, et cetera, et cetera. But you know what, Justin? Some people just want to get their teeth fixed. Some people mm-hmm. just want the graves of their ancestors to be upkept. I mean, right. these are the things where I go around asking people, well, what would you do, you know, if you had uh, upturns or whatever in terms of reparations um, resources in, in, the, in terms of cash? So I'm not necessarily one... And I'm speaking just for myself. I'm not necessarily one that says that has to be spent in this way and you have to be responsible with it, whatever. I mean, my God, again, I'm going to say, I go out and get hit by a car. Don't nobody's supposed to tell me what I'm supposed to do with the 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 the, the, the damages, the, the, the settlement that I get from that claim of that harm uh, that was done. But then we talk about community benefits. I'm a firm believer of, yes, direct benefits as well as community benefits. And that's another story in in and of of itself. And again, that's why it's so very important that people and groups and communities come together and determine just what it is that they want. This is happening all over the country right now. Every, uh, almost every day I hear of another jurisdiction that's talking about looking in their own backyard, at their own complicity with the enslavement era and the vestiges that last down to this day. And uh, uh, trying to get people together to determine just how to remedy that. Let me just say one thing, though, that's very critical. It's very critical that basic public policy not be confused with reparations or with reparatory justice. Okay, basic public policy, what you supposed to be doing any damn way? Okay, what's supposed to be happening anyway with our tax dollars and such and such? Basic public policy. But reparations is that something more, okay, that's specifically tied back and for a specific um, group of people. Well, I think um, it's very interesting what you're saying with, with public policy because I think my I think people in my generation are less prone to um, uh, have faith in the legislative process, perhaps than um, you know maybe the leaders that you looked up to, um, or at least the ones that my dad looked up to. 
Right. In the 70s, you know? too, too, didn't have much faith in the, in the, in the governmental process, period. <laughs> right. But it's, but it's interesting, you know, the, 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 the dynamic between black leadership as it goes on throughout difference in the 50s, 60s and 70s. I mean, at first you have the Pullman Porters and uh, A. Philip Randolph. Uh, then you have um, uh, uh, you have you have Martin Luther King, obviously, who worked hand in hand with Lyndon B. Johnson and things like that. Um, but I think today um, people are 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 less inclined to. Um, I don't know. I, I would like to see. I think I think reparations as uh, a thing that policy can solve would maybe have have more likelihood of passing if there were more lobbyists who cared about that topic. So you could say more black lobbyists or black people in Washington. And I think Washington is a power nexus where it's a very old boys network. So, you know, to crack that shell is, is, is difficult when, and, and I'll call out one, I'll call out the Republican party for not being more diverse, right? Because there's no reason why Republicans would, would would disagree with reparations. Republicans voted for reparations for Japanese people. Republicans had no problem voting for um, reparations for um, uh, Jewish people in the state of Israel. I mean, the Republican Party always is talking about how much they love the state of Israel and they love Jewish people and and all these things. So, um, you know, I I wish what I could see more out of my generation is. A little bit more, a little bit less of the kind of political activism that seeks to stay on the outside, and more knocking down the door the best way we possibly can. I mean, for you, for for you, as with your organization and and um, as a lawyer, I'm sure you have some experience lobbying and you know, be getting in the legislature and doing the work. So yeah, let me just say that um, actually. There are more co-sponsors to H.R. 40, which is the federal reparations bill, the Commission to Study and Develop Reparation Proposal for African-Americans, than there has ever been in history. In fact, there are over 200 wow. um, confirmed votes in the House of Representatives for reparations right now. So, wow. uh, yeah, this is an issue that uh, whose time has come. Now, it's mm-hmm. a different situation in the Senate, and it's also a different situation with respect to whether the the bill even in the House will get to the floor of the House of Representatives because of, um, you know, politics, <laughs> you know, right. politics, politics, I'll uh, <laughs> offer to um, uh, to say. But again, it, it you know, it's not that it's the issue of white supremacy. That's what the issue is. OK. And when you spoke earlier about um uh, people not wanting to spend the money and all like that. Well, they, people didn't bat an eye with the um, the, the CARES Act um, when the coronavirus was there in terms of the um, millions of dollars that were trillions, okay, that was allocated for that. People didn't bat an eye for the uh, resettlement of the um, Afghan. Afghan, yeah, uh, and they and, and you know they they have a set they have a settlement fund of over five hundred million dollars. Talk to me about it. I mean, no one batted an eye. Okay. Right. Right. But when it comes to the remedy mm-hmm. for black people in this country who built this country up, you know, who uh, uh, made it so that whites could enjoy legacy generational wealth. In fact, 
the, the whole lack of compensation during the enslavement era, it really created one of the worst humanitarian disasters, you know, ever. As we received literally nothing, they got generational wealth. What we got was intergenerational epigenetic injury, okay? We got the trauma traveling through our uh, genes, and, and, you know, and everything else. So it's not a situation of money or resources. They might say it is, but that's some jiggy boogie, okay? Because it's been done before, it can be done again. And, and, and again, all HR 40 is doing is setting up a commission. It doesn't give one red cent to anybody, mm-hmm. okay? And despite that, it's languished for over 30 years in the Congress. Well, we have a current Supreme Court that is quite conservative. And when I say conservative, let me preface for the audience. I think conservative is a very loaded term, just as liberal is a loaded term for even liberals or for conservatives. But by conservative, what I mean is these are people who believe in a traditionalism about America that esteems itself as being exceptional. And since it's being exceptional, there, there, there's, there's less likelihood of trying to do things or admitting to do things that admit some kind of culpability, some kind of wrong. So this is not the kind of court to go to for uh, helping Native Americans out uh, at their reservations. This is not the kind of court to go to for um, maybe not for reparations, right? And, and maybe the court might, might not even need to be involved. But what I'm saying is that we have a situation in our country where I think a lot of Democrats that are in red states, uh, particularly Democrats that are in states like like Florida, that's a swing state, or Ohio, uh, or even the, one of the Dakotas, will have trouble or feel pressure to not go with a reparations agenda. Um, and since you're not going to get any help from the Republicans, right, it, it, it creates a, a very murky waters for a, a bill like this. So what I think could be necessary, and maybe you may agree, um, Nikichi, or you may disagree, but we need, we, need, we, need, we need a better figurehead or figureheads coming out and really making the argument, just like we made the argument for the Voting Rights Act in the 60s. Um, I think we need a passionate, charismatic, and eloquent leader, uh, be female or male, uh, who, who can accomplish this and really distill the argument down for, for everybody. Because uh, I think if, if that's possible, you really pressure people to change and to, and, to, and to get off their couch and try a new perspective. Well, the problem with the cult of the individual is that that person can very easily be shot down. That's what's happened right. in the past. That's what happened with Martin Luther King. That's what happened with Marcus Garvey. That's what happened with Malcolm X. I mean, I'm just saying, you know, so right. I'm not quite sure if that's the solution. I think the solution is widespread education so the average, everyday, ordinary Black person out there can know these issues, can articulate them, even if not more so from just a... a, a uh, a passionate level that, you know, let me say, what is, what is the mantra? They stole us, they sold us, they owe us. If it's not even nothing more than that, mm-hmm. okay? Um, because, um, I, I mean, we have we have the um, intellectuals, okay? Uh, we have the actual intellectuals that can shoot down and have, in fact, 
been shooting down those arguments, but it really gets needs to get to the passion of the average person out there in the street. That's when we see change happening. That's where we see um, uh, legislative initiatives coming to light. That's when we see uh, uh, the Supreme Court backing down. Let me tell you this. Back then, um, um, uh, way back before I was born in 1951, W.B. Du Bois, William Patterson, Mary Church Terrell, and Paul Robeson and 90-something others petitioned the United Nations charging the United States with genocide. That was 1951. What happened in 1954? 1954, I think the Supreme Court looked around and did not want the world to have anything to do with looking at the lynchings and all those things that was coming out in that petition called We Charge Genocide. They said, well, we're going to let the black kids and white kids go to school together. That's when the Brown versus education came about, came, came about, that decision came about. I think that was because of the international pressure and the threat of international pressure that was on the United States. What happened with apartheid in South Africa? The world community talked about elimination and dismantling of apartheid, talked about the freedom of Nelson Mandela. Uh, College students were boycotting against corporations doing business in, in South Africa. The world community, we need that for our situation. It's not just our situation, because reparations is our situation for African descendants, wherever they might be, wherever they dropped us off, whether it was in the islands, whether it was in Brazil or, or, or um, uh, you know, from Mexico. To Mexico, you know, it, 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 exactly. And everybody is due reparations from their respective colonial um, um, uh, colonizers, you know, you know, shall we say. And, you know, we're in the we're almost near the end of the international decade of people of African descent. We should have advanced much further, particularly on this issue of uh, reparations. Let me just say one more thing. You know, one of the things that um, uh, white folk talk about uh, a lot, when Mitch McConnell was one, you know, I'm not innocent. I I didn't do anything during slavery. Well, for one thing, Mitch McConnell's relatives on both sides, mother and father's side, were slaveholders. Okay, just that's just as an aside. But basically, we all, all of us, stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. Although the present generation of whites may be innocent of what their forefathers and their foremothers did as a people, they are in a privileged position because of the actions of their predecessors. You see, each generation passes its debts as well as its assets on to the next generation. The, the, the heritage which whites enjoy in this country is what it's been called white skin privilege. They benefit from a society, from a state, from an economic structure, which is governed by white supremacy. And although we might, all the experts and uh, economists and all like that may debate methods of operationalizing all this data for measurement, the who, what, when, why, and how, there is no question, none, that Caucasians in this country enjoy the fruits of 400 years of unjust enrichment as a result of our stolen labor and as a result of the stolen minds, as a result of the um, um, of, of everything, of the cultural degradation, you know, the lack of political self-determination, all of these things, all of these harms 
all of these harms, okay, must be um, must be remedied. So, I was wondering. I was wondering if you were even able to take a breath while you were saying all that. There was so much there. I know. I just get <laughs> passionate because, you know, it's like, good God, I'm in my sixties and. I'm just learning about some things. Now, true, I ain't like most people who just found out about Tulsa yesterday. I knew about Tulsa. When I first heard about Tulsa was in the mid-80s when Philadelphia dropped the bomb on the MOVE headquarters. It was this back-to-nature group. And folks were saying, well, that's not the first time a bomb was shot. I said, what y'all talking about? And that's when I learned about the 1921 Tulsa um, Oklahoma, whether that was a bomb or whatever it was, it was some stuff being dropped from the sky and completely uh, obliterating uh, um, a community. I didn't know anything about Rosewood, Florida, and that massacre till John Singleton, uh, bless his, um, may he rest in peace, young black filmmaker came out with a film called Rosewood. Yeah, it was a Hollywood film, but it was based on fact, and it opened my eyes. And I said, oh my God. I just found out about Elaine, Arkansas, and that massacre for folk who were just trying to organize for workers' rights. That whole massacre, that whole community of those Black folk, I just found out about that about three years ago. Something's wrong with those pictures. Why do we not know? Wilmington, North Carolina, I just found out about that. When there was a, a documentary that came out a number of years ago called Wilmington on Fire. Where a situation where the, the 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 government, the government in Wilmington was a multiracial government, blacks and whites, okay, and they were herded out. The blacks were the whole professional class. They say you be out of here by sundown, or else you'll all be killed. They all had to. They got up. They had left business behind. They left homes and mortgages behind. And those who did not leave, their bodies were found in the river. I mean, we don't, why don't we know about this stuff? And they talking about, oh, well, we can't teach true history in, in the schools because it might make white kids feel um, bad about themselves. Well, how did I feel growing up in the early 60s and the only images I saw was these little books called Dick and Jane books, White Dick and Jane. I mean, I'm just saying the harms, the harms were so very multifaceted. It's not just the black, white wealth gap. It is that, but it's a hell of a whole lot more as well. And this casket is still being opened up to these atrocities, most of which have been swept under the rug. It's powerful stuff. And I'll let you have the last word there because, um, you know, that it's just, it's just, it's just, you're, 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 you're saying things that I think, um, regardless of your, your class or your religion or where you're from in this country, if you are of African American descent, you feel this, you feel, you, you have felt this, you, you can, you, you can, you are, you are a part of that history. And it lives in you. I mean, uh, there are many times where um, I have, even when I was a kid and watched uh, Amos and Andy with my with with my father, or you know, uh, my father purchased um, a bill of sale from one of my ancestors, you know, and I went to all white schools. I, I was totally oblivious to these things until I learned about them, and these things only made me improve as a person. 
You know, learning about these things improves you, whether black or white, Hispanic, Asian. They improve you as a person because they move the needle towards knowledge. They move the needle towards awareness and fairness. So um, I think we will end there for this week. I want to thank my listeners for tuning in. I hope this was a educational and 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 even challenging um, uh, uh, episode for you as we seek to improve you as well in any capacity. And I want to thank my guest, Nkichi. Thank you so much for coming on. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Justin. Thank you. It was my pleasure to have you as well. And we will definitely want to have you back, uh, you know, in the future. Absolutely. Thank you. Absolutely. All right. So as I always say, we are better when we trend together. Thank you. And you can find us on anywhere where podcasts are found. That's Apple. That's Google. That's Spotify. And please like, share, subscribe, and just talk about us. And my email is there so you can always reach out. All right. Thank you. And see you around.